scripture passage this morning, uh, the story of the Tower of, of Babel, uh, Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. I'll be reading this passage from the New English Standard Version translation. Uh, you know, we are customarily using that translation, but that's not because we say it's the only translation. And I'll just encourage you once again that uh, with respect to your own personal study of the Word of God, we are blessed today to have, a, uh, you know, a, a half dozen to even a dozen good translations that enable us to understand the Word of God. Um, I'm one of those who has a great affection for the old King James. Uh, it is a trustworthy translation. The updating New King James it is a trustworthy translation. Uh, in, in college, I cut my teeth on the New American Standard. I uh, was happy when the New American Standard update came out in 1995. And then while I was in seminary, the New International Version came out. Uh, my Hebrew professor was the chairman of the translation committee of the NIV. I used that for many, many years. And then in the last in a decade, been very faithfully committed to using the English Standard Version uh, because it's also just an excellent translation. Encouragement to you is... Surely you're going to have your favorite. But also read other translations as well. It's useful, it's helpful to see how the best minds of believing Christians today with their best scholarship don't always exactly agree upon the English word to use in our translations. But when you read several of these, you get a great sense, okay, you know, in the original language, this word has these different denotations and then connotations. Uh, this word means this, but the... The shade of meaning around it can even include this kind of thing. It, it just simply enriches your reading and study of the Word of God when you don't know the original languages. And even pastors who quote Greek and Hebrew, for the most part, we really don't know the original languages like scholars do. Uh, but we can use the tools, and we encourage you to study the Word of God. God has blessed us with an abundance of opportunities and abilities and resources to do so. Now we come to uh, this great passage, this great story in the Word of God, uh, Genesis chapter 11. Uh, hardly anyone, even in our culture today, which has so lost its memory of the Bible, uh, even the concept of the Tower of Babel uh, is something that people have been exposed to have some understanding. But let's read through this very carefully, and then let's begin looking at what it has to say to us. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. 
and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Let's pray. Our God and Father, give us what we need in order to understand your word. And that is your Holy Spirit. Uh, Working with our minds and our hearts uh, to clearly understand uh, the intention of the Holy Spirit as the divine author, the intention of Moses as the human author, so that we might understand these words given to us in for us today, our ordinary English language. But, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to really understand the height and depth and meaning of what is contained here. So we pray for that. Father, it's not just for the sake of knowledge that we ask that you would do this work with us and in us. It is because we're Christians. We name the name of Jesus as our sovereign Lord and King and Redeemer and Savior. We name the name of Jesus. And we want to be faithful to that name. And we want to follow him and we want to serve. And we know that your word is a means of grace to train us, to equip us, to enable us to do so. That's what we pray for. So Lord, use your word to help us to understand who you are, understand your ways, understand our own calling. This we ask. In the name of Christ. Amen. So you think about the term Babel, and it has a lot of connotations in today's culture. Uh, I went online to just check my own recollection and knowledge of this. What surprised me was I, since I'm not in the computer field, is to realize that there's all sorts of connections to the term Babel to computers. And though I don't know what this means, I understand that Babel is a term for a compiler. And I don't know what a compiler is, but apparently it's really significant with respect to, quote, JavaScript. And I have no idea what JavaScript is. But it's all out there, it's all there in the computer world, and it's all about Babel. And then there's a new language app that's come out, and it's pronounced a little bit differently. It's B-A-B-B-E-L. I don't know how they pronounce it. But anyway, it's also taken off the concept of Babel from the Bible because it's a language app in order to teach you how to learn a new language. So I looked at that, and I read a few reviews and so forth, and, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. So, so the concept of Babel still remains very current within our culture and connected to language. And then a little more research, I discovered that there was a movie that came out in 2006, and in October of that a year, a, a, a movie reviewer from the New York Times uh, wrote these interesting words as he began his review of the movie. He says, the biblical story of Babel takes up a handful of verses in the 11th chapter of Genesis. So far, so good. He's getting this right. This is amazing. A New York Times writer is getting something right mentioned in the Bible. And it illustrates, among other things, the terrible consequences of unchecked ambition. He's got it right again. As punishment for trying to build a tower that would reach the heavens, the human race was scattered over the face of the earth in a state of confusion. This is true. Divided, dislocated, and unable to communicate. And then I really like this line. 
more or less as we find ourselves today. <laughs> yeah, Babel, an ancient story with modern echoes. So even though this story is quite short, it is actually one of the most significant stories thematically in all of Scripture. It's really a very theological story, and it has a very, very big lesson about God and human pride. You can sort of think about the first commandment in the Decalogue. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what it says. What does it mean? Well, it means if you're not to have any other gods before me, you must have God as your God and nothing else. No substitutes. No putting anything in the place of God as God in your life and over your life. It's got to be God and God alone that is to reign supreme over your life. Another way of saying this is that your life is to be centered in the reality and the existence and the authority of God. God is ultimate, you're not. That's what this story is about. It's about humanity's aspirations to raise themselves up, as it were, and to replace God. So there's a major lesson in this story, and it's a major lesson at the beginning or the earlier parts of Earth's human history that is just as significant and valid at the time of Christ and as it is practically for us today. Here's the lesson. God opposes this inner drive within us to exalt self or to exalt humanity or to exalt the achievements of the human race because Scripture calls that the boastful pride of life, 1 John chapter 2. God opposes this kind of pride, this boastful pride of life, in order to teach this message to human beings. We have a purpose. The purpose is not about us. It is about God. And giving God his proper place in our lives, giving God all the glory that he deserves. That's the main lesson of this story, but you know that that storyline or that theme or that idea governs all of Scripture. Uh, so that even in the New Testament, we have the, the, the apostolic witness that God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So there's vital, important lessons for us to consider here. But as we look at this story, I want to use the simple outline of three points of course it would be three, of sin, judgment, and grace. I want us to think about the sin that we see in this story. I want us to think about the judgment that we see in this story. And I want us to think about the grace that we don't see in this story. Sin, judgment, grace. Now, let's, let's look at some background here because it's important for us to, to have a, a deeper connection with this time in Earth's history, this time in the history of the human race, and what is exactly going on here. First, let's begin with the term Babel. Um, what, it, what we're told at the end of these verses is not really where the story begins. 
because the word Babel has an Akkadian, which is another ancient language, has an Akkadian meaning that actually the, the Israelites and Moses would have known and understood from the very beginning. What does Babel mean? It means the gate of God or the gateway to heaven. Now, Akkadian is going to be one of those languages more original to this time in history than Hebrew is. Of course, Moses is going to be writing to his fellow Israelites in Hebrew. So there's something important in terms of recognizing what the word meant originally as it applied to this city and then what it came to mean after the towers destroyed. Uh, the city's founder, by the way, is given to us in the previous chapter, Genesis 10. It's Nimrod. Nimrod, who's described as a mighty hunter before the Lord. Some would say, some scholars would say, that concept of mighty hunter before the Lord and some of the ancient stories meant a mighty hunter of men that is a great conqueror of other people, one who would actually enslave other people. Nimrod is clearly presented in the Bible in the previous chapter as one who would go out and start empires. So in the plains of Shinar, he built the city of Babel. He built Erech. He built A-K-K-A-D, Akkad, from which we get the word Akkadian, the Akkadian language, and Kalne. All of those were built in the plains of Shinar. Now, further in terms of the setting. At this point, there are one united people group descended from the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They have not developed out into all of their tribes at this particular point. So there's one humanity, and there's one common language, and they use all the same words, and we're told that they migrate from the east, where they were, into the plains of Shinar, and that's where they begin to build the city and the tower. So this occurs in the generations after the time of the flood. Now for the Jews, as they're reading this, the story of the Tower of Babel, and if you were to look at the, the reading, you have the flood, you have Abraham. This is the big event from the time of the flood to the calling of Abraham. That makes the story very, very significant. Also, the story, though its whole design isn't about this, the story does answer two very important questions that people today have, that Moses' audience would have had. Questions about this. If everybody came from Noah and his three sons, why are there so many languages? Right? Why are there so many languages in the world? Moses and his contemporaries would have thought, yeah, why are all these languages? If, if all of us came from Noah and his three sons, why? But a, and that's answered, of course, in the story. But a second question isn't necessarily directly answered in the story. It would be something like this. Well, if all of us came from Noah and his three sons, and Noah found favor in the eyes of God, if Noah was a worshiper of the one true God, why then are there so many different gods today and religions today? That would have been a second question. Now the answer to the first question, of course, is very specific. There's, lots, there's all these different languages because of God's judgment. 
But the second question about gods and other religions, that only comes through an understanding of the larger context of the story of the Tower of Babel. That is to say, we have to think about the previous stories in Genesis. We have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We've got to once again look at Genesis 3.15 because what goes on in that judgment promise given to against the serpent and given to Adam and Eve, what goes on in that promise actually, whether it's explicitly or implicitly, whether you can see it clearly or it's just sort of indirect, it governs everything, everything thereafter in the story of Israel and in the history of redemption. Remember, this is what was said by God. I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed, the seed of the serpent, and her seed. He, her seed, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, the head of the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we've explained that promise. We know that this promise is all about the fact that there's going to be two kinds of people in the world. Those who can be identified with the seed of the woman as those who are saved. And those who can be identified as the seed of the serpent, those who are the unsaved. And there's going to be this constant enmity and hostility between these two. And we saw the outworking of this in the story of Adam and Eve's three children. We saw this uh, worked out in terms of the story of the flood. And now we come to the story of the Tower of Babel. And so we can understand that even though some things aren't clearly stated, what really lies behind what's going on in the Tower of Babel is, in fact, the influence of the seed of the serpent. Because this story is not about those who build a tower because they love God and want to climb up to the top of the tower to be closer to God. It's because those who build a tower because they want to make a name for themselves. So in the human population that builds a city and builds a tower, what we see is the reality of the seed of the serpent and its hostility against God. That's why the outline begins with sin. Let's look at the sin. Let's see what's going on here. And, of course, we recognize that the sin that's involved in the building of the Tower of Babel is this prideful, rebellious uh, attitude against God. Now, that becomes clear when we look at the sequence of events and what the story tells us. There is a migration that takes place, first of all, coming from the east into the plains of Shinar. Now, what they're doing in terms of the story is very clear. They're going to establish residence, but not just residence, not something temporary. They're, they don't want to be nomadic. They're going to establish a permanent residence. However, God commanded Noah, like he commanded Adam, that they were to be fruitful and to be, multiply and to fill the earth. Now, at the end of the story, or within the story, we understand that's really what's going on. So permanence of occupation in the plains of Shinar, permanent residence, so they will not be dispersed, is what's going on when they migrate from the east. They want to settle here. They don't want to go any further. So then they begin the building process, verse 3, to establish permanent residence. Now, this actually shows up in the manufacturing of their bricks. Uh, it so happens that in the plains of Shinar, uh, you don't have rocks, natural rocks, as building components. You just don't. There's, it's, they're too rare. They just aren't there. 
But what you do have are the material that you can build bricks. And they build bricks rather than clay blocks because the brick they build by putting them through the kiln and burning them thoroughly in the way they do creates a building material that is far stronger than clay blocks and it has far more durability. And that's actually what's going on within the text. All the scholars I read said, what they're saying here is that they're building bricks because they're going to be permanent. It has all that sense of what's going on here. Uh, and then they use uh, asphalt, which is what uh, bitumen is, in order to... Do, and by the way, the Middle East, the plains of Shinar, Mesopotamia, absolutely rich in petrochemical materials. And there are lakes of this kind of tar asphalt stuff that they could... We, thousands of years ago, it's even there today. Naturally, there in the area. Then verse 4 begins to tell us about the tower, the city and the tower. And... and Specifically, we're told the, the purpose of the tower. Its top is to go into the heavens. And again, that's where the Akkadian name Babel comes from, the gate to God or the gateway to heaven. Designed, therefore, to be a temple. And archaeology has given us a fair amount of information of what this might have been like because the word in Akkadian is actually ziggurat. And we see these ziggurat temples uh, that we've dug up in the Middle East, going back thousands of years. And the one that Nebuchadnezzar built was actually taller than the pyramids. Absolutely huge in terms of its structure. And we can only imagine that the original Tower of Babel was itself incredibly huge in this way. Now, they want to make a name for themselves by doing this, which is to say human beings. You're already made in the image of God. You're already called by God's name because he created you. He's your creator. That's your name identification. So the idea that they want to make a name for themselves is the pride of wanting to cast off God, cast off an association with the name of God, and to establish their own name. This is very humanistic, but it's very spiritualistic as well because it really becomes the worship ultimately of themselves, wanting to exalt themselves to the point of being gods. They want to build this temple as a kind of physical representation that they themselves are raising themselves higher and higher and higher in their quest to be like God. It's the same temptation that Satan gave to Eve. You shall be as God. That's what the ziggurat is all about. Climbing to the gate of heaven so that they themselves might be gods. Now then we see that the theme of all of this is human pride consistently seeks to throw off the reign and rule of God over our lives. That's what the tower represents. The inner drive in human beings is to throw off the authority of God in every way. God's authority is seen as a fetter. It's seen as bondage. It's seen like chains. And so people want to make themselves free 
of God. And in making ourselves free from God, it's that we might make in place of that a name for ourselves. Now that drive goes on. We see it all the time. We, we, if, if we stopped and thought about it, we would say that in the shorter catechism of humanity, the first question is this. What is man? Or what's the chief end of man? And the answer would be, man's chief end is to glorify man and enjoy man as God forever. Right? That's essentially what we see. That's what the Tower of Babel represents. That's the hubris and pride we see in the human spirit today. That is the evidence of the seed of the serpent. Because this is exactly what the devil desires to see in an attack upon and in the breaking of the human race. Now, how does that show up in our culture? Because it does show up. It's manifest and evident in people today. Well, look, we reject God's truth in order to invent our own truth. Uh, we throw off God and his word as our spiritual and moral compass, and we invent our own. We, we, we celebrate our own heart as the guiding principle and moral compass. You hear this again and again and again. The only ultimate authority in your life is your own heart and what your heart tells you to do. The Tower of Babel was the glorification of self. Even though written large over humanity, it was the glorification of self. And that is the essential philosophy that we see today. It's the glorification of self. Follow one's own heart. It will never deceive you. So we seek our own name. We seek our own fame. We seek our own path to heaven. We think we can get there by virtue of our own works and our own efforts. Now, all of us, as Christians, we ought to be able to see this. All of us are afflicted by this sense of pride. It is the deadly sin. It is that sense that we must promote ourselves somehow, some way. It is the inner selfishness that we often don't see within ourselves. It's often what motivates the things which we do that we're sometimes very blind to. The Tower of Babel. We have all built it in our own ways with respect to our own lives. Now, the second part of this uh, story involves judgment. Uh, we, we, we're going to see here what God does with respect to human pride. And so it begins with verse 5 with the Lord's reaction. It says, he comes down to see the city 
and the tower with which, by the way, this is where I will depart from the English Standard Version and the NIV and the New King James and the New American Standard and give you something that's more literal because it's exactly the way the Hebrews would have read this. He comes down to see the city and the tower which the sons of Adam had built. Now the word Adam means Adam. It also means man. It can also stand for mankind. But in this particular passage, uh, we really, the phrase, the children of or the sons of, really deserves a proper name. Because all of you are humanity, right? But very specifically, the, Moses is pointing out that here we have the sons of Adam, they're doing this. It connects this story all the way back to the creation story. So, but the idea here of God coming down is not to suggest, and it didn't suggest to Moses and the other Israelites, well, uh, God can't quite see things from way up there in heaven, so he's got to come down closer to get a better look. No, that's not the idea at all. The idea is this. The Bible presents God as infinite in all of his being. God is absolutely infinite. So God is everywhere. So God is way up there and God is also down here. But the idea of coming down is to basically say to the Israelites, God in his greatness, God as the most high God, is also the God who comes and intimately involves himself in all the affairs of men. So God is seated high and lifted up upon his throne but he also comes down to see in order to intimately involve himself in human affairs. That's what this is speaking of. So God comes down. Verse 6, God does his analysis. The sons of Adam are one people and one lip. The word language there just simply means lip. We often say tongue for language, but the Hebrews said lip for language. And he says, if they succeed in this tower building, if they make a name for themselves in this way, quoting, nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. Now that, in the Hebrew, is much like when we would say something like this. If they accomplish this, then the sky's the limit on what they're going to be able to do. Basically, it's a statement of, of, of how much bad potential is involved in all of this for things to go really, really badly in every way. If they're successful here, they're going to continue these kinds of things against God in unimaginably diverse and awful ways. Verse 7 and 8 then is God's response. He says, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now notice, the people, the sons of Adam, had said, come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build a city. They use this let us terminology, which reflects, by the way, Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image, and now God responds by saying, well, let us go down there and let us confuse their language. Let us. 
the connections there in the language is important for the Israelites to understand this is what God is doing. God is actively involved, and the irony here is that what God intended for good and creating us in his image, the let us, humanity, when it binds itself together, when it says let us, is almost always going to be involved in its community and unity and things contrary to God, and then God is going to respond. God in all of his glory as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us go down. Let us do these things. So God confuses their language. The very thing which humanity in its pride was seeking to protect themselves from we don't want to be dispersed over the face of the earth, is the very thing which happens to them under the judgment of God. You know, Jesus said that this is the way people think. Those who seek to save their lives will lose it. Those who lose their lives for his sake and the sake of the gospel are those who will find it. So the, the people, the sons of Adam, did not want to be dispersed. God's judgment was to confuse their language and to disperse them over the face of the earth. To fulfill his own purpose, which he stated in creation, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. His own purpose after the flood, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So then Moses sums up the story this way in verse 9. The city's name thereafter is going to be called Babel. So no longer the gate of God, Akkadian, but rather according to the Hebrew word Babel, because the Hebrew word Babel sounds like confuse, because there God confuses the language of all the earth. What's the point? God is going to judge those who exalt themselves against him. Now the Israelites had seen this in action. So this story would have connected with their own immediate experience had they not seen this in the way God had dealt with Pharaoh. Some ten times Pharaoh had exalted himself against God and against God's purposes. And they had seen God deal with Pharaoh and Egypt and their pride in judgment and then, of course, their deliverance. Later on in the history of Israel, the Israelites were going to see this in the story of, of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. In the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel, we have King Nebuchadnezzar that the Bible says was the greatest of all the kings of the earth in his generation. And he's walking around his city going, is this not the great Babylon I have built as my royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty... And the words are still on his lips when a voice from heaven comes and says, this is what's decreed for you, O King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority taken away from you. You're driven from people. You're going to live like a wild animal. You're going to eat grass like cattle. It's going to happen for seven years are going to pass until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kings of the earth and that God and God alone gives them to whoever he pleases. We also see this prophesied in Psalm 2 by David 
looking to the time of Christ, where David writes, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, again and again, what we find in the scriptures is that the Tower of Babel perspective rises up again because it is part and parcel of the fallen human spirit to exalt itself because pride is that sin above all other sins by which human beings think, I can do it myself. I don't need God. That is said by people who believe that God exists. Yes, God exists, but I don't need God. Have you not caught yourself as a Christian practically living this way? If you've gone through a day without praying, you have gone through a day in which you've said to the Almighty, I don't need you. Isn't that clear? Isn't that clear? That the pride that's inside of us will never be broken the way it should be broken until we are living day to day and hour to hour and moment to moment truthfully saying, Jesus, I need you every hour, every hour of the day. And when we are not consciously living that way, we are living in accordance with the Tower of Babel. We are living in accordance with our pride. We are thinking that we don't have to trust God with our whole heart. No, we can trust Him some, but really we can lean upon our own understanding. No, we don't have to acknowledge God in all of our ways, just maybe some of them. And God judges this pride. And you can be grateful that God judged this pride in you, in the person of his son. Now, the third part of the story outline is grace. Where's the grace in this story? There's a pattern that you see that gets broken at the story of the Tower of Babel. In Adam and Eve, you have a pattern that goes this way. There's sin, judgment, grace. Grace is given to them in the promise, and grace is given to them with the animals that are slain, and and they're properly clothed in that way. But there's a pattern. There's sin, God's judgment upon the serpent and upon them, but then grace. We see this in the story of their three sons. We have Cain's uh, sin, killing Abel. We have God's judgment upon Cain, but then we have grace showing up in terms of the, the third son, Seth, being born, who's going to preserve the line of the seed of the woman. We see it in the story of Noah. We've got the sin of mankind. We've got judgment that's pronounced, and then we have Noah, 
Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And with Noah, there's the covenant afterwards, there's the, the rainbow, and there's the commission again to, do, to get this new beginning going. But we come to the Tower of Babel, and what we have is their sin, and we have their judgment, but the story finishes without anything of grace. How do we understand that? Well, we read from verse 9 on into verse 10 in Genesis chapter 11 because in verse 10, we have the beginning of the genealogy of Shem, one of the three sons of Noah. And Shem's genealogy leads through all of the begats, again, all of the generations to Abram, who's going to be called Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12... The first couple of verses, here is what we see, and this is where the grace reappears. God's call to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make a great nation of you, and I will bless you. And here's the line of connection between the Tower of Babel and the story of Abraham and I will make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Moses holds off anything about grace until he comes to the story of Abraham. Because the story of what God does with Abraham is all of God's grace. It is all for God's glory, and it is all about the gospel. Now, how do I know it's about the gospel? Because the Apostle Paul tells us so. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul talks about this passage in Genesis 12 in these first three verses because this is what Paul says. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. Verse 14 so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, they're representing all of the world. I'm noticing the clock, so I want to tie this up as fast as I can for us to understand that the pattern of sin, judgment, and grace is never truly broken in redemptive history. Because all of the story of the Old Testament is a story where the pattern of sin and judgment and grace happens again and again and again. But it has its great goal in mind. It has its great ending point in mind. And that ending point, that great climax of the story is what Paul says about Abraham's experience 
in Galatians chapter 3. It is all toward Christ. The Tower of Babel demonstrates what afflicts all of us as human beings. But even in God's judgment to disperse the languages and to disperse people all over the world had in it what God intended to do in Christ. Because Christ came not just for the Jews, not just for the children of Abraham by blood. Christ came into this world in such a way that he becomes the entire world's savior. Because what do we read in the last book of the Bible? Revelation 5, verse 9. Worthy are you, they're saying to the Lamb who's upon the throne, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Grace is ultimately about Christ dying for this world, dying for the sins of his people scattered throughout all of this world, dying for people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So that two chapters further in the book of Revelation, we read this. John looks and beholds a great multitude that no one can number, of all of the nations, tribes, and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. The gateway to heaven is Christ. Not our pride, not our attempting to save ourselves. Salvation is found in trusting in the one that God gave to Abraham, even Jesus, as a blessing to bless all the world. The one that God has given to us who receive Jesus by faith and trusting him. So that the great name that God gives to us is the great name of his son that he is our redeemer he is our king he is our savior it's not done by us exalting ourselves because God opposes the proud he gives grace to the humble but it comes through our saying to God the father I need your son for time and eternity. I need your son every hour. Let's pray. Almighty God, we would ask that you would break the Tower of Babel in each of us and then enable us by grace to live not to exalt our own name, but to lift high the name of Jesus in every way, in every aspect of the lives you've given us. For his name's sake, to the great glory of Jesus.
Amen.